The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Sarah Ogilvie, whose new book is The Dictionary People, The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. Sarah, welcome. Now, to start with, I think to to give these unsung heroes a frame and a place in, in this story, can you explain a bit about what the structure for the making of the Oxford English Dictionary was, You know how it differed from previous dictionaries like Dr Johnson's and so forth? So it was 1857, and it was the London Philological Society where three men first proposed creating a dictionary that included every word in the English language. And this dictionary was going to be different, as you say, from previous dictionaries, because rather than something like Johnson's, which was quite a prescriptive dictionary, this was going to be a descriptive dictionary. This was going to be based on written sources based on the ways that people actually use words, they wanted to document every word in the English language. And they were smart enough to realize that trying to accomplish such a massive task would be quite impossible for a small group of men living in London or in Oxford. So they decided to crowdsource it and they opened it up to everyone, not just within Britain, but actually around the world. And they asked them to read their local books and gather their local words and write out quotations from those books on small four by six inch pieces of paper called slips. And they invited them to send them to Oxford. And that's what happened. And they had no idea whether this was going to be a success or not. And it ended up being a massive success. In fact, so many people sent in slips to The chief editor eventually became James Murray, and he was living in Oxford. And so many people sent in slips that the Royal Mail had to put a post box, a red pillar box outside James Murray's house at 78 Banbury Road, and it's still there today. Yeah, it's still there. And there is now a blue plaque on James Murray's house at 78. It was actually behind that house where the actual making of the dictionary happened. Shall I tell you something about that? <laughs> yes, tell us something about that because I'm, I'm quite <laughs> obsessed by this scriptorium. Alas, not yeah. still there, but this kind of exactly so, type thing. Yeah. So James Murray started to write the dictionary from inside his house, and he had a long-suffering wife Ada and eleven children. And there were, there were so many books and slips and pieces of paper that Ada said, "James, you've got to get out of the house." Moved him to the garden where they built a corrugated iron shed, which they affectionately called the scriptorium. And this was a shed partially dug into the ground. So therefore, during winter, it was particularly dank and cold, and the editors had to wrap their legs in newspaper to stay warm. But that is basically where the dictionary was written, out in the garden shed. And this kind of crowdsourcing effort... There were all these people all around the world sending in slips. Was there kind of any guidance on what they were to 
do? I mean, did they simply read whatever book they felt like and whenever they came across a word that they liked the sound of, they wrote it on a slip and sent it in? I mean, it's kind of a very haphazard sort of way of doing it. Yeah, basically, yes. However, Murray did provide 12 rules for the volunteers and they were things like how to structure the actual slip. So to put the head word up in the left-hand corner to make sure that they wrote correctly what the author of the book was, the date of its publication, the title, and then the quotation and with the page number. But one thing that he asked people, and later on he regretted that, he said to them, please look out for interesting or rare words which people then did. And later on, he actually struggled to find instances of the commonplace words. So often towards the end of editing a particular entry, he'd be scrabbling around trying to find quotations from more common words. This idea of crowdsourcing, which I find really kind of intriguing, I think you use the sort of tantalising phrase somewhere in your book that you say, you know, this was the Wikipedia of the 19th century. Was it a completely new thing? Because there seems to be a, I mean, I think, you know, the course of your book, you talk about various other crowdsourced projects, including the Dictionary of National Biography and and the Charting of Rain. I mean, was this a kind of pre-internet, internet revolution in the Victorian era? Was it the dictionary that started this? I think there were three main crowdsourcing projects and the OED was certainly the largest and the most successful. So, the other two that that I talk about, because there seem to be some serial crowdsourcees amongst the dictionary people. So some of them were also collecting rain, as you mentioned, and that was for the British Rainfall Organization. And that was a precursor to weather forecasting. So basically, they asked people to collect rain overnight in gauges in their back gardens, and then to send in the records of how much rain fell on a particular date. There's a whole chapter about them in the book. But there was also a vicar from Norfolk who sends in a lot of words to do with plants, and he is also collecting wildflowers for the British Botanical Society who were, again, crowdsourcing and asking people to collect wildflowers so that they could map the distribution of flowers across Britain. So there were a few crowdsourcing projects, yeah. Now, let's talk, talk maybe about your way into this, because well, certainly the story of the making of the OED has been told in various sort of academic histories, but you're talking about the unsung heroes, the crowdsourcees. Um, how did you realise it was even possible to write this history? Well, I used to work as an editor on the OED, and I was always absolutely bowled over by the first edition. There were just so many words there. And because I'm originally from Australia, I was sensitive to the coverage of words from that area of the world and incredibly impressed by the thousands of Australian words there. And so I have always wondered who the Australians were who sent in words. And as you say, we we knew that this was the Wikipedia of the 19th century, but we never really knew exactly who those people were. We never knew exactly how many they were. And I had always wondered whether we might be able to even track, to find out who those people 
were and even track the words that they sent in because the remarkable thing about the archive of the OED is that every slip that someone sent in still exists today. They are stored down in the basement of Oxford University Press. And I was down in that basement looking around about nine years ago when I came across a dusty box and I took the lid off and inside there was a little black book tied with cream ribbon. And when I undid the ribbon and opened up the book, I immediately recognized the immaculate handwriting of James Murray. And I recognized that and realized that this was his address book. So as I was holding his 150-year-old address book, I then realized that this might be the key to the dictionary people. And indeed it was. And I found two other address books belonging to Murray. And then the following summer in the Bodleian Library, I came across three address books belonging to Murray's predecessor, Frederick Furnival. So with those six address books, I realized that this was really the key to the dictionary people. And I started an eight-year journey of researching every one of those people. I really wanted to cast a light on them and as I was discovering the people and they were coming to light for me, I realized that there was a really, there were amazing stories here that I wanted to share with many people. That is the most extraordinary thing. Why do you think these address books didn't come to light? As I say, you know, the history of the dictionary has been written. People have written about Murray. People have written about Furnival. It seems very weird that they're just sort of sitting there in a cardboard box and not a single scholar has come upon them and gone, this might be important. Well, the archivist knew about them because I too had that thought, oh, am I the first person to discover these? And no, there was an archivist uh, number catalogue on several of the pages inside the address book. So I knew that the archivist knew about it. But I was also familiar with a lot of the publications and I too had written the history of the dictionary myself in 2012. So I knew that no one else had made reference to these. Maybe they had seen them and hadn't realized the value, or maybe they just hadn't. I mean, there are a lot of boxes down there. So, yeah. And these dictionary people, how many of them were there and where were they? Sure. So from these address books, we now know that there were 3,000 people and they were all around the world. So as you can imagine, in the mid, so the dictionary, as I mentioned, was first proposed in 1857, and it took 70 years to finish. So it was finally published in 1928. So during that period, you went from the British Empire being at its height to gradually dwindling. But that empire provided an incredible network for word to get out about the dictionary. But what I found quite remarkable is that inside the address books, there are addresses and there are people outside of the British Empire as well. So there are people in Japan, in the Congo, someone in Rio de Janeiro. So yes, so this really was a global project. And what, well, I suppose it's a sort of related pair of questions. One of them is, is how did, you know, in a pre-internet age, this crowdsourcing work? How? What was the network through which these people were recruited? And which I think does kind of feed into that, the answer to that question is, what did they have in common, if anything? 
So the network existed and it came about because the editor, James Murray, put advertisements in newspapers and in journals. But especially if you think of that period, it was through clubs and societies that people socialized. So it was through clubs and societies in particular that word got out about this project. And I'm a technologist. And so actually, when I first looked at James Murray's address books, he mentions the he gives the person's name, their address, and then he lists every book that that person read. Beside it, he puts the number of slips that that person wrote out from that book. And then beside that number of slips, he puts the date that he re- received that. So when I looked at that information, I personally just immediately thought of a digital project where I wanted to geocode those addresses and map the people and the distribution of them across the world. Then I also created two databases, one of all the people where I then entered all the information as I found out when I searched through censuses and marriage certificates and death records and anything that I could find, I would enter that into the people database. And then the other database that I created was one of the books that they read and the dates that they sent in their quotations. Because what I wanted to know from that is whether there was a bias perhaps within the books and therefore the quotations within the dictionary. And what is quite remarkable is just how diverse those publications are, how well balanced there are. There are a lot of female authors there. And of course, the finding of this book is that there are far more women contributing to the dictionary than we realized and are far more Americans as well. But when I looked at those two databases, Another part of me, because I'm a digital scholar, is I wanted to do a network analysis of those people. So that means that I applied graph theory to the people and I found out who the hubs were within the network via clubs and societies. So I looked at a thousand clubs and societies from the period, both in Britain and in America. I found out who amongst the dictionary people were members of those clubs and societies, and then I applied graph theory to that. And the results were absolutely fascinating because I think most of us who know a little bit about the dictionary would have thought that James Murray would have been a key hub, probably the key connector within this network. Or people who know a little bit more perhaps would have suggested Frederick Furnival, who was this big, colorful character, and he was the editor before James Murray. So that would have been my guess. I would have thought that Frederick Furnival was that key hub. But in fact, the mathematics showed someone completely different. It showed Alexander John Ellis, who I talk about. He was an extraordinary character, wasn't he? (laughs) Yes. He is the character that Henry Higgins is based upon. He, He was a phonetician and he helped Murray with the pronunciations. He was also a specialist in British dialects and a mathematician, and he helped Murray with the mathematics entries. What I loved about him is he came up with his own spelling system for English called glossotype, and he was quite eccentric, a very kind, humble man who used to wear a huge overcoat, which he nicknamed Dreadnought, 
and this coat had 28 pockets and every pocket was filled with a different eclectic item from a tuning fork to nail clippers to a scone just in case friends got peckish or another pocket had a corkscrew in it which was quite bizarre because he actually didn't drink himself. He would only drink a hot water with a dash of milk in it, which I've now tried and now I really I really like it. Anyway, so there were colourful characters and Ellis turned out to be a key person because he brought a lot of other people to the project. He and a lot of the people that he brought to the project were influential people who really helped Murray with the whole process and the whole project. You've arranged your book in a sort of tantalising way of sort of A to Z with each one standing for some kind of quite dramatic and spicy aspect. So there'll be sort of, you know, Q is for queers and uh, I think, what is it C is for cocaine addicts and there's you've got lunatics and murderers. Um, I mean, were these standout categories, do you think, more highly represented as a percentage of the dictionary helper population than the general population? Or is it simply that if you take 3,000 people, there'll always be a few lunatics and murderers in them? I tend to think that the nature of this work, which was very repetitive and detail-oriented, that it definitely suited the more neurodiverse amongst us. I know that I got quite obsessive in my tracing of these people, and I recognised in them my own personal traits as well. (laughs) So I think that I don't think that this is just a general random sample. I think that the dictionary people are quite particular. And I think that the fact actually that four of the top contributors, so the top contributor sent in 165,000 slips. So we are talking someone absolutely dedicated to this task. Over a 10-year period, that's how many slips he sent in. But the next top contributor as well sent in 150,000 slips, and he was a man called William Douglas, and he was listed on the censuses over several decades as lunatic, which is what they called someone with mental health problems. And uh, he actually dies in a psychiatric hospital. So the top four contributors all have connections with psychiatric hospitals. There's, of course, the famous Dr. Liner, who was a murderer. So there are three murderers. So what I tell Dr. Minor was the subject of Sam Winchester's book, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, wasn't he? That's right, yes, which was a bestseller. And it's a terrific story about Dr. Minor, who was um, an American surgeon, murdered someone and ended up in the Broadmoor Mental Asylum. But what I was really surprised about is that he was one of three murderers and he was also one of four people in mental asylums. There's a lovely detail there that Murray was corresponding with him for years before he realised that the return address to Broadmoor didn't indicate that he was a doctor but an inmate. That's right. And so when he goes to visit him, he's surprised to look down and see that there are chains around his feet. Yes. Yeah. And yet Miner's contributions were not problematic in any way, were they? Oh, no. They were extremely scholarly and rigorous and uh, Miner had a really wonderful collection of 17th century medical texts, which Broadmoor was a very lenient prison and let him have his library in a cell of its, of its own. So Miner would wake up and go into the book cell and send in Murray 
two things really, mainly travellers' tales. So he contributed a lot of words from other languages which came into English. And the other thing were 17th century medical terms. But, you know, Dr. Minor only contributed 62,000 slips. So above him were three other people who really uh, were extraordinary in the number of slips that they sent in. Yeah, I mean, a bit like Wikipedia in a way, isn't it? There's a very small percentage of sort of super editors who spend their entire time on Wikipedia and then a whole lot of casuals who don't really do much at all. Is that the same distribution? It's exactly the same. And in fact, I mapped that. I did a spatial mapping and you do see that there is a huge number of contributions from very few people and then that classic long tail and that graph matches exactly the same graph of the contributors to Wikipedia. So yeah, when we call it the Wikipedia of the 19th century, that is not just a figurative expression, it it really is. And these people map and match that distribution. Yeah. Yeah. It's also the case, isn't it, that quite a lot of the dictionary people, those of them who were literary people, they kind of appear in the dictionary not only the citations they've sent in, but quite a lot of them are, you know, their own works are sent in on slips by other people, or in one particularly egomaniacal case, someone who read his own books and sent them. Yes, yes, and Mr. Peacock, who wasn't exactly the best novelist, but he read his own novels and sent in slips from his own books. But most of the others, actually many of them, and I'm thinking now of the wonderful Margaret Murray, who starts the book. She's in the A for archaeologist. She grew up in Calcutta and as a teenager, she used to go to the roof of her house early in the morning while it was still cool and she'd read Indian travellers' tales up on the roof, writing out slips, sending them into Murray. She flounders around and doesn't really know what to do with her life until she's 31 and she then goes to a lecture by the famous archaeologist Flinders Petrie and wants to work with him then and becomes this wonderful archaeologist herself and the first female Egyptologist. The lovely symmetry and circular notion of her contribution to the dictionary is that in her mid-career, she really becomes the pioneer who's, who writes about witchcraft and her books on witchcraft and also her books on various archaeological digs throughout the Middle East eventually are read by other contributors and by the editors in the 1970s and quotations from her books are now in the Oxford English Dictionary. To talk a bit about the scope of the dictionary as well, I mean, you've said that, you know, many of us will think it's very English and yet Murray, against some resistance, was keen to include languages from all around the world. I mean, a a sort of slight marmalade dropper of a fact you've got in is that there are more quotations from the Brisbane Courier Herald in this in the Oxford English Dictionary than there are from the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> well, that is a bias which was brought in recently, which I'd love to tell you more about. But to just answer your first thing, yes, James Murray was intent on being true to the scientific principles and the historical principles of the dictionary. So he said, if a word occurs in a written source and within an English context, that word deserves to be in the dictionary. And that therefore meant that if there were foreign words which were used in English sentences, 
Murray said they deserve to go into the dictionary. So he put them all in. And because we had these contributors, not just in America and, uh, and Australia, but also in South Africa, in Canada, where you had at the time all of these varieties of English popping up, therefore all of words from those varieties, from world Englishes, were being sent to Murray and he was putting them into the dictionary. I've gone through and read many reviews of the fascicles. So basically, the dictionary didn't just come out all in one lot in 1928. It was published gradually in these little chunks of the alphabet. And as those chunks were reviewed, people were criticizing him, saying that these foreign words, these, I think they said, these outlandish words have no place in an English dictionary. They said they are decaying our language. And in fact, I also found correspondence in the archives from James Murray's bosses within the secretary to the delegates also saying, why are you putting these foreign words in? But he kept on doing it. He ignored them. He kept on putting them in. And I think it's a great thing that he did because now, I mean, his view of language was very enlightened for the time because now we all think of varieties of English as legitimate and standardized and Murray too saw them in exactly the same way. And so he was sort of ahead of his time in that respect. It's peculiar that, as you say, not only the sort of, at the time, quite you know serious fads for spelling reform and synthetic languages were also running in, in parallel. A lot of the dictionary people were involved in both of those things, weren't they? They were, yes. And it's really fun. In the Bodleian Library, I found a lot of letters between him and that Ellis, Mr. Ellis that I spoke about, but also a whole coterie of men who uh, would write to one another in these alternate simplified spellings. They were really wanting to do that out of a sense of justice. They thought that the formal English spelling system was very complicated and unnecessarily complicated, and therefore they saw it as a barrier to people learning to read and learning to write. So they were trying to simplify English out of a social justice impetus, really, wanting that to help literacy in the 19th century. Was that compatible, though, with dictionary work? If you know, one of these is trying to change the language by will, and one of them is trying to describe it as it is. Yeah, I think that they, I think given that all of these people who were involved in those pursuits were also dictionary people, I think that they were balanced and, you know, carried it well. Yeah, I think it was fine. <laughs> Another question that enters in, it's a delicate one, is is that of filth as well as foreign language, language words? How progressive was Murray on the question of describing obscenities and taboo words? There's a lovely detail of one contributor who was absolutely okay with cunt, but couldn't deal with the word condom. <laughs> yes, that was James Dixon, who was a retired surgeon. He said, yes, the, that the C word should definitely go in, but he said there's this very obscene word that the French have created, and he said all obscene things come out, out of France. And the letter that he sends Murray about the word condom, which is the one that, that he thought was far more obscene than the C word, that is inside a little envelope marked private and put into a larger envelope. So almost like a French letter, actually. And uh, yeah, so Murray, of course, gathered a lot of evidence and really 
he agonized over whether he should include these words. And he felt a real tension there because, as I said, he was very open and faithful to the lexicographic principles of putting every word in. But we must remember his context. The Obscenities Act had just come in. And at the same time that Murray was contemplating at the beginning of the dictionary, because as you can imagine, the letters C and F were towards the beginning of his workings, there was a large court case going on at that time where Farmer, Stephen Farmer, had tried to publish a dictionary of slang. And that dictionary contained a lot of coarse and swear words in it. So he was being sued at the time. Murray was aware of that. The two of them corresponded and Murray decided not to put them in because he didn't want to draw attention to the dictionary and damage its reputation. And so, in fact, a lot of those swear words didn't get in on, until the 1970s. Yeah. So, speaking of omissions as well, you, you, there's a lovely detail that appendicitis is a word that didn't make it into the dictionary. This caused great embarrassment. Why was that? It was again by that same James Dixon. So James Dixon, as I said, was a retired surgeon and he used to help Murray with a lot of the medical terms. And Murray wanted to put in the word appendicitis. There's a letter from James Dixon saying, don't put in appendicitis. It's just another itis word. And if you go down that route, you'll never finish. So Murray left it out. But in 1902, at the coronation of Edward VII, the king actually came down with appendicitis and the coronation was delayed and suddenly you, you had everyone talking about appendicitis, but no one could actually find it in the dictionary. <laughs> so funny. And, um, just briefly back to the filth, one of the I mean, major contributors kind of is this character Ashby, who was just a, a delightful well, semi-delightful creature. Tell us about Mr. Ashby's contributions to the dictionary. Yes. Henry Spencer Ashby lived in Bloomsbury and had the world's largest collection of pornography. I also think that he probably had a very good sense of humour because he sent in many slips to James Murray and they were the sex words. And what I learned in researching this book is that this period in the 19th century Bondage and S&M were very, very big. And so a lot of the words which he sent in were to do with flagellation and things. And I can just imagine Murray, who was Presbyterian and a teetotaler, extremely earnest, getting up at 4 a.m., writing on the dictionary. I couldn't imagine him perhaps blushing when these sex bundles came into him monthly. It is extraordinary you say that... Um... It's something I think you quote. Is it forty percent of all pornography produced in the nineteenth century was sadomasochistic? Yeah, there's a wonderful book. I think it's called Bound Up. Anyway, I list it in the back of the book where I've got the further reading, and that is a terrific book that um, tells you all about bondage literature in the nineteenth century. Yeah. Now, Old Ashby. I mean, he was a very respectable family man, father of several children. Da 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 had this enormous world-beating collection of scut. Is the thing his wife kicked him out when she discovered it? Because he doesn't end as happily as he begins. He doesn't end as happily as he begins, but I think it's less to do with the pornography collection and more to do with he actually had a whole other wife 
and children with another woman at the same time. So this veneer of respectability, there, there was a lot more going on behind the scenes, yeah. Well, that'll, that'll tend to do it. Um, well, the great contrast, of course, is Murray himself. What can you tell us about Murray's character? Because what an kind of extraordinary thing that comes through in this book is that Oxford, the university, the university press, you know, were not as helpful as they might have been. You know, he carried this burden very nearly single-handedly for an awful lot of the time in terms of organisation and the putting together of it. You know, what drove him? What was he like? Definitely. Well, the extraordinary thing about Murray, and this was actually a theme across all of the dictionary people, Murray was an autodidact. He left school at 14. He taught himself 25 languages. He worked his way up from nothing. And this was a common theme amongst the dictionary people. Most of them are amateurs. So they're not the scholarly elites who you might expect who created the OED, but they're the autodidacts, they're the amateurs, they're not the professionals. So Murray definitely fits that character. And he comes to Oxford and never really fits in. They never really accept him. He, for example, he's never made um, a member of a senior common room. But he receives early on a, an honorary doctorate from the University of Edinburgh. And from that day on, he wears his scholar's cap. So even though he's sitting in his back garden inside the scriptorium, he wears his cap daily. And clearly to be accepted within the scholarly community was something that he strived for. And I think I do quote in the dictionary a very poignant letter, which he writes to two of his sons towards the end of his life about that aspect of his identity. And there is a whole chapter on O for Outsiders where I talk about two key people who I think typify the outsider status of the dictionary people, one of whom is Joseph Wright, who starts life. Yes, he starts life in a very poor Yorkshire family. His, his mother puts him to work as a donkey boy at the age of six. At the age of 11, he moves from being a donkey boy, which basically is someone who carries tools for the miners in a Yorkshire mine. At the age of seven, he moves on to a cotton mill. By the age of 15, he still can't read or write, but he's at a morning tea and one of the mill workers is reading about the war in the newspaper and he's captivated by the war stories and wants to then read himself. And this man teaches him to read and he teaches himself to read and to write. And now he ultimately becomes the professor of comparative philology at the University of Oxford. So he really is a, an extraordinary instance of someone who starts as an outsider and then finally becomes an insider. And you also say that, you know, you've mentioned already, we touched on this idea that women were much more involved in the creation of the dictionary than has previously been thought and then you know, that their place in society might have warranted. What, you make the point that in the book that the lifespan of the making of the dictionary almost exactly maps the lifespan of the suffragette movement. Um, it does. It does. And you can track that through the language around the suffragette movement. So if you look at words like feminism and um, the women's efforts, all of the lexicon from that movement are exactly mapping the same dates of the dictionary. And then, of course, in the 1920s, when women finally do get the vote just a few months 
before the launch of the dictionary, when women across all ages and classes finally do get the vote. So there is a definite correspondence there, and there are a lot of suffragists. I didn't find any suffragettes, but there are suffragists within Murray's address book. And many of them, when you look at the books that they read, they were reading female authors, Austen and the Bronte sisters and things, yeah. You mentioned also that suffragette as a word is allowed only very grumpily into the dictionary, isn't it? Yes, and I can't quite remember the story with that, Sam. Can you remember? The complaint is that it's not a proper formation because I think maybe it's too macaronic in some way. Yes, and the jet was considered a diminutive. So that was originally quite a demeaning term, but of course then it was claimed and reclaimed. That's right. Also, the scholarship of the dictionary, we think of this as this crowdsourcing thing. It's brand new. It's Victorian cutting edge, you know, steampunk bleeding tech. But we were, you sort of admit slightly sheepishly early on, like 50 years behind the Germans. The Germans start earlier than us, yes. So the brothers Grimm, Wilhelm and Jakob Grimm, who we know through their fairy tales, Well, they wrote the fairy tales really in their spare time. Their main jobs were as lexicographers. And the Brothers Grimm wrote, really, it's the German equivalent of the OED. It's called the Deutsche Wörterbuch, and it's a wonderful historical dictionary. They, too, crowdsourced, and I'm pretty sure that the OED followed their lexicographic methods, and I talk about this in the chapter E for Europeans because they used slips as well. But the difference between the two dictionaries was that the German dictionary crowdsourced just within the scholarly community, whereas the genius, I think, of the OED was that they went beyond the scholarly community and just asked the general public. Therefore, they got far more contributions and far more people taking part. So whereas the Grimm dictionary, I think, at their height had maybe 150 people that OED had 3,000, and that might be why the Grimm Dictionary took 176 years to finish, (laughs) whereas the OED was done in just 70 years. Just 70. Um, Now, we know from his correspondence, which has been so brilliantly kept, that Murray cherished and encouraged and petted and directed and helped those, at least of his dictionary people, who were any good. How much credit did they get how, how were they recognised and were they recognised in a kind of systematic way as the dictionary started to come out? That's a great question. Yes. So before finding these address books, we knew that there were several hundred people. And that is because, as I mentioned, when the dictionary was gradually published in these chunks of the alphabet, in these fascicles, Murray and his fellow editors would write a little preface to each of those volumes. And sometimes they would mention and and thank people. Murray was also president of the Philological Society for certain years, and during those periods he would give a presidential address and often he would thank people there. So that's why we knew that there were probably around 700 people from those addresses and from their prefaces. So we knew that there were a fair few. When you analyse the people mentioned and given credit in those prefaces, the majority of them are Murray was very clever. 
They are more the scholars. They are more the people who you can clearly see would have brought prestige to the publication. And people whom he wanted people to know were part of the project. So I think he was clever there. It's almost like a content marketing of the 19th century. Yeah. Well, a, a final version of it was slightly poignant is that the launch of the final dictionary years after Murray's death, you know, there wasn't much space, was there, for the dictionary people, particularly not the female dictionary people. That's true. In fact, yeah, I, there are very few, if any, dictionary people at the final celebratory dinner, which was a grand dinner at the Goldsmiths Hall in London, where the Prime Minister came and a lot of journalists, representatives from different media outlets came, but there were no women at the dinner. There were a few women who had spent their lives working on the dictionary, for example, Murray's daughters and the daughter of Henry Bradley, who was another editor. They were not allowed at the dinner, but they were allowed up in a balcony watching the men eat. And there was a woman who came to that balcony who gave an interview in the 1970s, actually, and I found that interview, and she used a great word. She said, the, the women were skied, um, S-K-I-E-D. And this dinner, the address by the prime minister was actually broadcast on BBC Wireless. And I can just imagine that the dictionary people who were still alive then were probably in their sitting rooms, glued to that wireless, feeling proud that the work that they had done was finally being published. Well, Murray himself, though, who's really the hero of your book, um, how much did his, I mean, we know how his dedication and care and fastidiousness kept the project going, as did his money, but how much did his character shape the dictionary itself in the way that, say, Dr Johnson's very notably did? I mean, you mentioned that sometimes he put in little Easter eggs here and there. He did put in a couple of Easter eggs when two of his daughters were born. He puts in some very tender references to that. But generally, he was fastidious and extremely disciplined in keeping within the bounds of the historical method and trying to keep himself out of it. I do think that no one else could have managed this project as brilliantly as Murray did and I also don't think that anyone else could have corresponded and related to the dictionary people as well as he did. I think that being an outsider himself really helped him and he could relate and communicate and keep a correspondence. The volume of his correspondence is extraordinary. To think that he wrote to every one of these contributors and kept relationships with them going, which of course was so important to keep favour with these people so that they would keep on sending him slips. And he manages to do that, and I don't think that anyone could have done it as well as he did. And at the same time, what is remarkable is he also is a great dad and a terrific family man, and every one of his children clearly love him and speak so highly of him, and he had a great sense of humour and a great sense of fun. So he's quite a remarkable character, yeah. And the sense of timing, as you say, he didn't live to see the dictionary completed. He got as far as T, but every history of the dictionary, as you report, says that the last word he wrote an entry for was twilight. 
Yes, that's the last time that we see his writing on a slip down in the basement from A to Z. However, I went back to find it with the archivist, with the wonderful Bev McCulloch, who's the archivist of the OED. And in fact, we can't find that slip now. So we don't know That's, where it's gone. Yeah, we what hope do you think's all... happened there? Has somebody salted it away thinking this would be worth something at auction in a few years? Oh, I, gosh, I hope not. I hope it's just maybe it was taken out to show in an exhibit or something, or maybe someone took it out and placed it back in the wrong spot. I certainly hope no one's taken it. Well, I hope a dictionary person sends it in. Sarah Ogilvie, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a pleasure. 